us pray together. Father, it's our desire that we would be able to taste and see that you are good. That you would fill us with your spirit and make our hearts ready to hear from you. And I pray that as a result of hearing from your word, that you would summon forth praise and honor and thanksgiving from your people. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants is that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's message is going to be our last in the book of 2 Corinthians. And for me, it's almost impossible to cross the finish line today without thinking about and remembering where we started. Uh, I started preaching through 1 Corinthians nearly six years ago, just a handful of months after Kenwood, uh, Kenwood merged with Victory Memorial and moved into this building. And then I started 2 Corinthians almost exactly three years ago, except that between 1 and 2 Corinthians, I did one little uh, message on the book of Jonah. Uh, but that means that we started 2 Corinthians almost exactly three years ago. It was on March 22nd in 2020. It was the second Sunday of the COVID shutdown. Uh, Jim preached the first COVID Sunday on Genesis 5 into a camera into a largely empty room right here. And then I preached the first message on 2 Corinthians on that second COVID Sunday into a, Camry, into a camera in, in what was largely a, an empty room. So at that point, in March of 2020, we thought that COVID would be the big news of the year. And we didn't even know that the hits were going to keep on coming. In April in 2020, we found out, as John mentioned in his prayer, that um, little Rena Abbott had cancer. And I mention her because uh, I do want you to recall the Abbots today. I want you to pray for them because today is that one-year anniversary of her passing. They're out of town today. They're on a family trip. So you pray for them. That happened in April of 2020. We had uh, suspended our gathering together three years ago for about six Sundays before we regathered in May and resumed our worship services. And it was that very month that cities across the nation were plunged into turmoil after the death of George Floyd. That turmoil came to our city and even to our church. Jim fired the anti-woke shot heard round the world on June 7th. 2020, and as the year wore on, we said goodbye to members, and we welcomed many new ones. And as I look back on how we started this just three years ago and think about the finish today, I can't help but think about how much has changed. At the beginning of COVID, we were all trying to do our best in good faith, even suspending our services. Now I think everyone would have to be bleeding out of their eyeballs before we would ever consider doing something, something like that again. I think we would all go to jail before we would think about doing that again. 
It's been three years, three more years of living, learning, suffering, crying, laughing, worrying, learning to trust again. Through all of that, three, or, three more years of mercy from the Lord. Three more years of transformation into the image of Christ. Three years is not that long ago. And yet, as I was thinking about this, getting ready for this sermon, and I look at that first sermon in March of 2020, I think, that guy preaching that sermon was so naive. He had no idea what was coming, and he was about to make a lot of mistakes, experience lots of mercy from fellow elders and members, and from the Lord. So I've been thinking a lot here at the finish about how things were at the start and how we all were at the start. Do you remember what you were like at the start? Even if you weren't here as a member of Kenwood yet, and we have, gosh, probably over 100, 150 perhaps uh, people who are new since 2020, even if you weren't with us here three years ago, do you remember what your life and your mindset and your mode of life was like three years ago? Are you the same person today that you were then, or can you discern that along the way, the Lord has been bringing his word and his Holy Spirit to bear upon your heart through all the ups and downs since March of 2020? Paul did not write this letter so that the Corinthians would remain as they were. He wrote this letter so that the Corinthians would be transformed into the image of Christ. You remember 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Can you detect in your life that things have changed as a result of God's word in 2 Corinthians? Are you wiser now than you were then? Humbler now than you were then? Slower to anger, patient, filled with love and forbearance? As we think about where we started, these are the kinds of questions that we ought to ponder as we come here to the finish. Now, if you haven't already, I do want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll be looking at those last verses, verses 8 through 14. And in our last message in 2 Corinthians, we studied Paul's exhortation to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves unless indeed you fail the test, it says in verse 5. With those words, Paul challenges those who have high-handedly raised themselves up in opposition to Paul's authority as an apostle and possibly even to the gospel that he preaches. And he tells them that instead of testing his authenticity, they ought to be testing their own authenticity. And he ends in verse 7 by saying that he's praying for them not to do evil, but to do good. And so now as we continue on in verse 8, where Paul is going to finish his argument, and then he's going to add some final words. So here's where we're going this morning. Paul is going to give his final argument in verses 8 through 10, some final ex exhortations in verses 8 through 12, 
And then a final benediction in verses 13 through 14. So a final argument, final exhortations, and then a final benediction. So first of all, the final argument. Everybody look at verse 8. Paul says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Now notice there, Paul begins with this word, for, to signal that he's in the midst of building an argument. Which means that we have to reach back to verse 7 where he writes, We pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. And now, verse 8, he's explaining why he prays that way. He says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So follow the logic here. This is Paul's way of saying that no matter what they think about him, he always prays in a way that advances the progress of the gospel in their lives. Even if the Corinthians have a dim view of him, and we know under the influence of these false teachers, apparently some of them did, he's always praying that they will do no wrong but do what is right, and he prays that way because he will not do anything against the truth, whether or not... He has passed muster in their eyes. So when you look at the Apostle Paul, you're looking at a guy who's got a really large heart. They've got a dim view of him. He's not going to do anything against the truth when it comes to them. It's kind of like how you relate to your children. Even if your child rebels against you and begins looking with contempt upon you and what you stand for, you're not going to retaliate against them and do something to hurt them or to make things worse. At least not if you love them. If you love them, no matter how little they may esteem you and your views, you are always going to pray for them and to be walking in the truth. And you're, you aren't going to do anything to undermine the progress of the gospel in their life. That's what Paul's trying to do here. One commentator says it this way. He says, true apostles are controlled by the truth and not preoccupied with themselves. In other words, a true apostle is not preoccupied with personal slights and what other people are doing against him, he's more concerned with their good, with seeing the progress of the gospel in their lives. And he's not going to be sidetracked by that, by personal slights. So Paul says in verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Keep in mind here in the last message, all those first-person plurals. Who are they referring to? They're referring mainly to Paul, right? So we're glad means I am glad when I am weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what I pray for. That's what Paul's getting at. So he's already said that he's learned to be content. Remember this? In, in chapter 12, he's content with his thorn in the flesh. And all the suffering that he goes through that makes him look weak. You remember that? He knows that God's power works in him most powerfully when he is weak because that is when it becomes most clear to everyone that God, it's God, not Paul, doing this work of ministry. So he has no problem being weak and he has no problem being viewed as weak by them because his main concern is not with himself. His main concern is them. He wants them to be, in, your trans, in the ESV it says, to be restored. If you're reading a King James Version or a New King James Version, 
Uh, it doesn't say restored. It says something, I think it says perfection. As if he's working toward their moral perfection. I, I think that that rendering would be wrong. I think the ESV has it correct here. Uh, because this term Paul uses is based on a verb that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to putting something back into working condition, fixing something that was broken. It's the term that Matthew and Mark use when they describe James and John mending their nets. It's the term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1.10 when he calls for divisions to be healed. It's also the term that he uses when calling for a sinning brother to be restored to the congregation in Galatians 6.1. So the ESV has this correct. Paul wants the wayward Corinthians to be restored in their relationship to him and to their obedience to the truth. That relationship had been strained by these false teachers who had come in. And now Paul wants it to be put like it was before those people came in sowing their error in the congregation, turning them against Paul. He wants them to be restored. So look at verse 10. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Notice that for this reason at the very beginning, he's about to tell you exactly why he's writing the things that he wrote in this letter. Why is Paul writing the letter? Why is he identified and dressed why has he identified and dressed down the false teachers? Why has he labored through 13 chapters to confront what has gone wrong since he left them? Paul says, for this reason, I write these things. He wants them to correct themselves. He wants them to take care of their own business. He wants them to behave like a well-ordered, disciplined congregation that operates under the lordship of Christ. And he doesn't want to have to force the issue with a show of charismatic, apostolic power when he comes to them on his next and third visit. It is much better for them to obey Christ than for Paul to come in from the outside and force the issue. So I'll address the parents again. Which, which do you prefer, parents? You go out for a date night. You hire a babysitter to take care of the kids. You tell the kids to obey the babysitter, to clean their rooms, to clean the kitchen, and to make sure that the house is in order by the time that you get home. And you come home from a nice evening out together, and none of it is done. In fact, all of it looks undone. The babysitter is frazzled and frustrated at her wit's end. The kids' rooms are a mess. The rest of the house is, too. It, it, things look worse than when you left. So you call the kids together and you have a serious come to Jesus meeting with them. And you administer the kind of discipline that they will never forget. You have each one of them apologize to the babysitter. You have them do the jobs that they failed to do when you were gone. And then in the end, on the other side of discipline, the babysitter gets honored. The rooms in the house get cleaned. All the jobs get done. So everything is as you said that it should be before you left. But which would you prefer, parents? Would you prefer the kinds of kids who have hearts eager and willing to do what you tell them the first time? Or would you prefer children who will only do 
what they're told after you compel them through discipline? We all know the answer to that question. All of us prefer the former and not the latter. We all want children with open and obedient hearts. Nobody wants their child to have a recalcitrant heart because everybody knows that the latter course of, a, of recalcitrance ends up to very dire consequences in the long haul. And so that's why Paul wants the Corinthians to obey his letter and why he doesn't want to have to clean house himself when he arrives for his next visit. How they respond to this letter will reveal whether they have receptive hearts or recalcitrant hearts. And we have to recognize that it's really no different for us. How we respond to this letter reveals whether we have receptive hearts or recalcitrant hearts. Will we receive and obey the vision of the church that Paul sets forth in this letter? Or will we say, we know better than Paul. We can do this better than him. We're just going to do it our way. Will we do church discipline when it's required? Will we stand down false teachers when they show up? Will we trust God in the midst of suffering and affliction in our lives? <coughs> Will we care for the needs of the saints and even give of our material resources to see that everybody's needs are met? These are the things that Paul talks about in this book. In other words, will we do all those things with receptive hearts or will we have to learn obedience from the Lord's hand of discipline? The Bible says that if you're a son of God, you will not be without discipline. And I submit that it's always better to learn in the gentle classroom of God's word than in the harsh chambers of his discipline. So this is Paul's final argument in verses 8 through 10. But then he turns to final exhortations in verses, eight, in verses 11 through 12. Everybody look at verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul often ends his letters with conclusions that have brief final uh, sort of summarizing exhortations. And that's certainly what we have here uh, after the word finally. With that word, Paul is signaling that his argument in the book is finally coming to a close. And he's um, finishing up the letter with a series of five exhortations to the believers in Corinth. He says, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. So, as you look at verse 11, you can tell Paul's tone has changed a little bit. He's moved to a much more affectionate uh, mode of address to the Corinthians at this point. But what, what do each of these five exhortations mean? Well, the first one there says rejoice. Um, if you're looking again at the King James Version, it doesn't even render rejoice. It, it says something like farewell. There's some other translations that do this. As if Paul intended some kind of parting good wish, the equivalent of basically saying goodbye. But that would be the wrong way to understand this. this. It's a command, actually, from Paul to rejoice, which means to be in a state of happiness or well-being. 
Now, from everything that Paul has said up until this point, you may think that it's counterintuitive that he would give such a command, given all the heaviness that he's just written about, but it's really not counterintuitive at all. Paul has already said that the whole point of his ministry is their joy. Do you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24? He says this, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So it's really no surprise here at the end that Paul would command them to rejoice, for this is the whole point of his ministry, he says. We are workers with you for your joy. Every correction, every admonition, every doubling down on my apostolic authority, all of it is for your joy. All of it, the whole point of the ministry is to have them happy, and particularly to have them happy in God. And indeed, this is almost the entire Christian life, isn't it? That no matter what happens or how hard it gets, that we would have a deep and abiding confidence and hope and even joy in Christ. That we may be, even though we may be a suffering people, we may be a persecuted people, we may be a grieving people, we are never to be a joyless people. <coughs> but that we would always be sorrowing and also re rejoicing. Paul says in the verse, aim for restoration. Literally, it's probably um, be restored. That's, that's what I think he means here. And it goes back to what he says and what he prays for in verse 9, where he talks about their restoration. He wants them to throw off the errors of the false teachers and to walk in line with their apostle and in faithfulness to the gospel. I think that's what he means by aim for restoration. He says, comfort one another. Now, I think the ESV is correct to render this with the word comfort, but I think it's probably not quite as accurate when it says one another. There actually are no words in the original that correspond to one another. Um, I think the verb is most likely passive, and Paul is really repeating the theme of comfort with which he opened the letter, which was also passive. You remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 6, Paul said, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, see they're passive. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So when Paul exhorts them to be comforted, which is what I think he means here, he's telling them to receive comfort from their apostle. Just as God sustains Paul through his sufferings, and Paul's given a good account of that in this book, he's saying that just as God sustains Paul through his sufferings, so he will also sustain the Corinthians through theirs. Just as the promise of resurrection brought Paul through his afflictions, so the promise of the resurrection will bring the Corinthians through theirs. That's why he says, be comforted. For, for them to obey the command to be comforted means that they have to trust in the God who raises the dead. And you remember in chapter 1, in verse 6, where he told them just, chapter 1 and verse 8, where he told them just that. He also says, agree with one another. Literally, this means to think the same thing. This exhortation most likely answers the uh, earlier admonishment about their divisions. You remember in chapter 12 and verse 20, 
He says, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. You remember that? He's concerned about these divisions and he doesn't want them to be divided from one another by sinful anger or gossip or slander or false teaching. Rather, he wants them to have unity in their love for one another and in what they believe. So he's saying the same thing that he said in Romans 12, 16, where he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Or Romans 15, chapter 5, in verses, six, uh, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Over and over again, Paul's exhorting the congregations, have the same mind, think the same thing, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So it's really not as if Paul is saying that we should be cookie cutter Christians as if there would be no personal differences or diversity among us. Of course, there are going to be those kinds of things. But he is saying that on the main things, we must have absolute unity, which means one faith, one confession, one baptism. Unity in the essentials. So when it comes to what we confess, we do not want our beliefs to manifest diversity, equity, and inclusion. As if it were a virtue to give equal time to false teachings and heresy. No, on that front, we want unity in the truth and a commitment to destroy every speculation raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what Paul's calling for. He also says, live in peace. This command echoes what Jesus said to the disciples when they were arguing with each other about who was to be the greatest. Jesus corrects their views about greatness, and then he says to them, be at peace with one another in Mark 9.50. What that means there in Mark and what it means here in 2 Corinthians is that we're supposed to let go of rancor and disputes and to think the same thing so that you can be at rest from all your quarreling. And then Paul closes verse 11 with this. Look at that phrase. And the God of love and peace will be with you, which means that the God who loves and the God who gives peace will be with you. When you are walking with him in obedience to these commands. When you're being conformed to Christ through the Holy Spirit, you can be sure that God is very near. No matter what else happens, he is with you. He's with all of us. And then there's one final little exhortation in verse 12. Look at that. Greet one another with a holy kiss. How many of you have been looking forward to having this one explained? Um, this one has given readers pause over the years, especially those who live in cultures like ours that do not include kissing as a common mode of greeting. In our culture, kissing is either the romantic kind or it's the non-romantic kind 
a thing that we might do with close family members. Um, it's not something that's commonly, it's sometimes, I was writing to the elders about this last night, and they were telling me exceptions to all of this, but uh, it's usually not how we greet one another. It would probably be quite, quite strange and perhaps even offensive if a man were to begin going around and kissing other men and women as commonly as everybody else is shaking hands or says hello. Um, that's just not done in our culture, and I guarantee you that if a guy were to take it upon himself to start kissing my wife and daughters, I'd probably have a word, uh, maybe more than a word. So what does that mean? Does that mean, well, okay, it's not what we do in our culture. We're just supposed to ignore a text like this. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I actually don't think that Paul means to mandate the mode of greeting here so much as the warmth of the greeting. In the first century Greco-Roman world, a kiss was not an unusual casual gesture. So gesture. Um, so Paul instructs the Corinthians that when they do this thing that for them was ordinary, more or less ordinary, it should be done in holiness. And I think his accent there is on, on holiness. So he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, which would mean no kissing like Judas. You kiss somebody, and you really have this ulterior motive, a hypocrite. You've got this greeting, which is just a fake. No kissing like Judas. No kissing like a lecher. Somebody who um, has some ulterior sexual motive. 1 Timothy 5.2 says, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Remember Paul saying that? There should be no ulterior motive or impure motives in this greeting, but only holy, demonstrable warmth, which is appropriate among brothers and sisters in Christ. It is to be, as one commentator writes, a token of the joy, love, reconciliation, peace, and, com and communion that Christians know in Christ and with one another. End quote. So how are we supposed to obey a verse like this? I agree with Charles Hodge, who in his commentary on this text, he said this. He says, the spirit of the command is that Christians should express their mutual love in the way sanctioned by the age and community in which they live, end quote. In other words, it's, sens it's sensitive to the cultural context that, that, that you live in. In our context, I think that would include a handshake. Uh, perhaps it might include... A hug with persons of the same sex, maybe a side hug with somebody of the opposite sex that you're not married to. It needs to be appropriate, holy, wholesome. I can't remember if I ever told you guys this story before. Um, if I did, forgive me, I'm about, I'm about to, tell, to tell it again anyway. Um, but when Jim and I were in seminary, we were in this spiritual formation group together. And there's about seven guys in this group. For some reason, during our first year in our graduate studies, that group got into this Farkle thing. Um, everybody was constantly, you ever heard of this? It's almost like rock, paper, scissors, game of chance. And it would be, if you lost the Farkle, you had to go and do something, usually something humiliating. And that's our first year, and you could tell we were really getting a lot out of seminary. Um, but uh, <laughs> one time, two, to three, two or three of the guys, I think Jim may have been actually in this class, but two or three of the guys from the group were in this theology class doing a farkle and the one who lost had to go up to the professor after class and give him a hug 
except here was the stinger. The loser was not allowed to do the typical bear hug thing or the big man pats. You know how guys, when they hug, they, they go like this and they pat each other just to make enough pain just to know that this is a man thing. Um, <laughs> you couldn't do that. Okay, if, if you, when, you, when you went up there, if you lose the farkle, you had to go hug the professor and hold him without moving at all for five seconds. <laughs> Do you know how long five seconds feels to a guy expecting a big bear hug with the, you know, the, the back slaps? Well, um... Our buddy Kyle Peterson lost the farkle, and he had to go and do this, and it was so awkward. I mean, five seconds. It felt like an hour. When is this thing going to be over? Um, I know that none of you are doing this, um, but my point is, is, is that we want to do what's honorable and appropriate, and we don't act like we just lost a farkle, okay? <laughs> do what's appropriate in our cultural context. Seriously, though, be careful. Remember that Paul says these expressions should be holy, okay? I would counsel everyone, I would, I would counsel men especially, not to be presumptuous or quick to initiate physically intimate expressions with persons of the opposite sex who aren't your family members. Let's honor the holy aspect of this command. I'm not laying down a law here. I'm saying if you're going to err, err on the side of caution, not on the side of License when it comes to this kind of thing. And I would also say this. Let your verbal greetings be so vivacious and joy-filled that no one would mistake a lack of touch for a lack of, for, for, for coldness or indifference. So greet one another with the warmth that Paul is commending here. So a final argument, a final exhortation, and then, and then here finally a final benediction. Uh, Paul mentions here in verse 13, he says, All the saints greet you. Um, Paul will often do this. Wherever he is, he'll give a shout-out from the people he's with to the people he's writing to. He's saying, all the people, all the saints greet you. And I think it's instructive for us because just as there should be a warm and demonstrable greeting within a congregation, Paul's showing here that there ought to be a warm greeting among different congregations, people who believe the same gospel that we do. There's, it's a good word for us to remember as Baptists, those of us who believe that our church is independent and autonomous. Our polity is no excuse to be cold and indifferent to other gospel-minded churches and people. We ought to maintain a warm affection for other gospel-believing congregations such that our love and affection could be expressed in the kind of greeting that Paul is passing along here. Look at finally the verse, verse 14. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, verse 14 is the benediction. This is how Paul often will close his letters with this kind of expression. And a benediction is simply an invoking God's blessing on somebody else. That's what a benediction is. So you'll remember at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you, all in Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.18, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Philippians 4.23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's constantly giving these benedictions. You get the picture. But the benediction here at the end of 2 Corinthians is really extraordinary because it's explicitly Trinitarian. 
Notice that it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Paul, you know that Paul often uses the word God, theos, to refer to the first person in the Trinity, God the Father. So when you put this all together, Paul clearly is invoking the three persons of the Godhead to grant salvation to sinners. He's praying for his readers to be blessed with Jesus' grace, the Father's love, and the Holy Spirit's fellowship. Now, when you read that, does that mean or imply that grace only comes from Jesus? Or that love only comes from the Father? Or that fellowship only comes from the Spirit? The answer to that is no. Um, Paul elsewhere speaks of the grace of God. So it's not just the grace of Jesus. He'll speak of the grace of God the Father. Chapter 1 and verse 2. In chapter 5 and verse 14, he speaks of the love of Christ. It's not just the love of God. He speaks of the love of Christ in chapter 5 and verse 14. Paul speaks of the fellowship of the Son in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1 and verse 9. So grace, these ideas of grace, love, and fellowship are works that are common to all the persons of the Godhead. And that means that what we have here is an expression of what the theologians call divine appropriations. If you've never heard that word, you can write it down. Um, divine appropriations. This doctrine recognizes that sometimes the Bible attributes to one divine person features that are common to the whole tr trinity. And it does that in order to illuminate or illustrate better the distinct personal relations of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this verse is reflecting distinct appropriations of the one work of God in saving his people through the three persons of the Trinity. So the grace of the Lord Jesus is an appropriation of Christ's unmerited, is referring to an appropriation of Christ's unmerited goodness to his bride. The love of God would be an appropriation that you see revealed in expressions like John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The fellowship of the spirit would be the special association and communion that we have with each other and with God through his indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul calls for all of these graces to be minted into the lives of God's people and they will be minted into your life if you are one of his people. So after his final argument in verses 8 through 10 and his final exhortations in verses 11 through 12, he's concluded here with this final benediction. What kind of final applications might we keep in mind as we finish 2 Corinthians? I think perhaps the best thing we can do is just to draw lessons from the major movements of the book. Do you remember the major movements of the book? Chapters 1 through 7, Paul defends his apostleship against those who are questioning it. Chapters 8 through 9, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to be generous in their offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 10 through 13, what we've just finished, Paul is confronting the false teachers who've infiltrated the congregation. So, so how do we respond to this? Well, I think we have to remember, first of all, that God has given us his word through his chosen spokesman. And his revelation is now recorded for us in the Bible. We don't choose God's spokesman. God chooses God's spokesman. We don't question the apostleship or the authority of Paul. 
God chooses that. Jesus said that this is my chosen instrument to bear my name to the Gentiles. That's us. That means that when Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians and in every other letter of Scripture, that's God. That's God's word that ends up on the page. And we are called to obey and to make every part of it central in our lives. Second thing I, I would say is, is we must not greedily cling to our money and possessions, but must put all of it in service to the love of God and loving our, our neighbor. None of our stuff is our own. It all belongs to him. And so we give freely because freely we have been given to. The third thing I would say is we must not shrink back from confronting false teaching and, and false teachers themselves when they arise in the church. We are called to all of this. We don't make this up as we go along. We follow the apostolic instructions. If you're here this morning and you are visiting and you don't know anything about this gospel, um, maybe you know that something is not right in your life. Not everything is right in the world. You know that you have not always done right according to what you would view to be true. Well, the Bible says that there's an explanation for why you would feel that. The Bible says that this world has been made by a creator, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that he has a perfect law and that all of us have fallen short of it. All of us. We're all a bunch of lawbreakers. And the reason that this world is so broken and the reason that sometimes you feel so broken is because this world is under a curse and you are under a curse because of sin. And the Bible says that if you die in your sin apart from Christ, you will go forever to a place separated from him, a place of torment. The Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That means that God made a way for you, a broken sinner, to be saved. You can't save yourself by doing good works, by doing righteous deeds, whatever you think those are. The Bible says that Jesus already lived the life that you should have lived but never did. He died the death that you deserve, but you haven't died yet. And the Bible says that God will count Jesus' perfect sacrifice towards you, and you receive that only by faith, only by trusting in him. If you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. And our invitation to you this morning is that you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and be saved. Let me pray for you. Father, use your word in our lives to make us into the image of Christ. Make us like your son. Help us to repent from our sin and to walk in righteousness. And help us to bless you, the one and only triune God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.